This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Renthal offers chains, grips, bars, clips, chain wheels, brake pads and other accessories for your bike. Just enter the make, model and year of your bike on the Fit My Bike option and Renthal will do the rest. On today's podcast, myself, Steve English, Adam Wheeler, David Emmett, Neil Morrison will look back at the Indian Grand Prix. So uh, it's only fair to kick things off with another inquiry about um, Adam's bowel movements. Adam, how are you now that you've managed to get back to Europe? uh me and my bowels are fine steve uh yeah no complaints i probably as people have listened to in our note shows over the weekend uh, i played it safe but um yeah it was you know it was a good grand prix in the end glad to be back home though neil you're about three or four coffees in this morning how are your bells i'm actually one tea in this morning steve because i'm trying to do the first two hours of each day without a coffee i've heard that that actually helps you wake up in a better more natural way without a crash i can see david looking at me with total disdain (laughs) um so yeah just just one tea in steve so um yeah uh, excuse me if i'm a little drowsy you know there's caffeine in tea <laughs> exactly so it's completely pointless what i'm doing right uh, well no i mean it's it's up to you if you want to torture yourself like that it's completely up to you um i uh, just couldn't face anything without copious amounts of coffee i'm on me second he puts milk in his tea as well david adam just for the indian grand prix obviously we're going to kick things off by looking for our ratings from the weekend what was your rating for the indian grand prix um first off steve i'd like to say you know um big thanks to sort of you know all the patrons that were listening to the note shows of the weekend as i mentioned it's also pretty cool to see some of the numbers that have come through for listens for the paddock pass podcast i mean we're well over like one million listens a year i think you know if anybody wants to sort of get involved with us i mean we have a, a long-standing association with rental now which is fantastic and um, we're talking to a couple more people but the fact that we were able to go to, you know, Grand Prix, um, pretty much every single round of a championship that spans the globe is, is, is quite impressive. And it's thanks to people like we have, like, like Renthal and that we have on Patreon that sort of makes that happen. So if anybody else wants to get involved, then just drop us an email through the website or just try and reach us through a, like a DM on Instagram or, uh, sorry, I should say Twitter rather or X, then, um, you know, get in touch and we'll sort something out. But, um, overall for the Grand Prix of India, I'm going to give it a, pretty decent volume of seven out of ten um there were some rough edges of course and i think they were to be expected i think having a delay was pretty much the theme of the weekend because there seemed to be um things that held up proceedings for one reason or another but it was a decent track it had grip no major big issues uh, dry quickly after the rain there was a lot of enthusiasm and atmosphere from the Indian fans that turned up and a lot also a lot of resources and support for the Grand Prix, both at government level and just basically on the ground. So, uh, yeah, a nice seven. Yeah, I have to say, when we saw all the local officials coming in, you could see just how much emphasis they were putting on this race. And given that India's got the Cricket, Grand, uh, the Cricket World Cup coming up and they've had Formula E and now MotoGP, it does look like they're making a big investment in a lot of these big events. Neil, what about you? What was your rating for the weekend? I'd probably have to be an eight, Steve, and that's just because of where we were this time last week. I mean, we weren't absolutely 100% sure that we were going to even have a GP this time a week ago. Um, Not just uh, issues with um, the visas for many people trying to get to India, trying to get into the country. A lot of flights were missed and had to be rebooked. Um, But also there were still question marks surrounding the track going there. But um, I think everyone was pretty much pleasantly surprised when they got to the track on on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, The facility was a lot better than anticipated. The track, I think, was a lot better. One or two small adjustments, I feel, uh, you know, listening to the riders speak throughout the weekend that are needed maybe for next year. I think the wall on the outside of Turn 10, a couple of guys were saying it's maybe a bit too close. But generally speaking, you would have to say from what we envisioned and what we were sort of fearing in some respects, leaving Mizano, to what we had, you would have to say it was a it was a massive uh, massive surprise and a massive success. So yeah, it I would go for. And Dave, what about you? Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Eight out of ten. I mean, we had basically like three runaway winners in in each class uh, and a bit of a runaway winner in the in the sprint race as well. Um, but there was still good action around the back, the or a little bit further back. 
the racing uh, or rather the track was much better than i thought it it was very interesting in terms of layout um it, i mean ideally it needs uh, servicing i think the standards of marshalling were a bit uh, iffy at times it would have been good to get more people there um but yeah it was also interesting that everyone was uh, absolutely terrified of this weekend and 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 it all worked out quite well also like i'd been concerned about actually getting uh, freight out but i just got a message from uh cormac who puts his camera bag in with the honda freight and that has already arrived in japan so that that, that all got out quickly as well so that uh, is a very positive sign that the um uh, tax and customs issues which uh, f1 had have been solved just a, a quick reaction to a couple of those points. Um, I think it was Mark Marquez who commented on the proximity of the wall there. And he also recognized the fact that there are a number of circuits on the calendar where walls could be moved. Uh, you know, if you look at Jerez and Mugello as well, there's, there seem to be, there's not many tracks where safety is 100% on point. So I don't think um, Bud is um, particularly a victim to that. Um, Dave, also, I think, you know, having three runaway winners from what I was seeing over the weekend, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Actually, it was quite refreshing to see, you know, some supremacy in Moto3 um, instead of it being the, the usual fair where we watch it for the first two laps and then, you know, go and make a coffee, have a chat and come back for the last two laps. Uh, it was, you know, quite engaging to see how people were mastering different things and different speeds. Also, I'm not too sure what it really means when the top three fastest riders from Mizano are also the top three fastest riders in Buda in a circuit they've never seen before. I mean, does that mean they have the biggest, uh, I don't know, coherency with their technical package? I mean, Marco Bezecchi, Jorge Martin and Peko Bagnayan were setting the pace around an unknown venue once more. So that was, uh, that was pretty cool. The Ducati is the best bike on the grid. Yeah. I also spoke to somebody quite high up in Dorna uh, who said that they were slightly concerned about getting the freight from India to Japan simply because it was more hours east, uh, but not really for logistical terms in, in working with the Indians and, and, the, and the border. It was more just a case of timing. But then they did say to me also that the, the spin from Jerez um, to Argentina, um, I think that was, um, or the other way around rather, that was a little bit more pressing. That was the most urgent pressure point of the calendar compared to this one well let's move on to our moments of the indian grand prix adam let's kick it off with you for me steve i think uh standing at term one uh for the sprint i mean it seemed kind of like an obvious place because it was the problem hotspot through the weekend but uh just going there to see all the bikes threading through uh, of course we had the big crash with um the two vr46 bikes that pretty much ruled Marco Bezzecchi out of a, a victory there. Luca Marini went to hospital, I think, to have a plate and numerous screws inserted into his left collarbone or his shoulder. I'm not too sure which area of the, the, the body it was actually damaged. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was pretty thrilling as well. And yeah, there was a big sort of gathering of fans along that main stadium section. So that was, that was pretty cool. I mean, it's very close to the track there. And then if you turn around, there's a huge big screen as well, which, you know, people watching the international TV feed could probably spot the riders as soon as they come um, off like a fast lap, looking to their right, going into turn one, they were probably checking out where they were in the listing. So it was a handy place to stand. But there were a couple other sort of things going on as well. I thought the clash between the Husqvarna teammates on the last lap of Moto3 was pretty sensational. And it says a lot for Yumo Sasaki's sort of character that he was pretty upset. He had a, quite a serious demeanor on the podium. Uh, you know, it was quite positive for him in terms of the championship. I think there's only one point now splitting him and um, Daniel Hogalo. But of course, Yama Masia also in the mix. But that was uh, obviously an action highlight. And, you know, you could hear the fans all around the circuit. And the media center was just behind the pit lane. And it was, you know, wasn't right next to what was going on. But you could really hear like the fans responding to what was going on around the circuit. And lastly, uh, you know, Jack Miller kind of sat down in his media debrief. I think it was on Friday and said that there was a monkey in his pit box. Uh, and apparently people were thinking, you know, are you seeing things? He said he was in his chair. He was quite sort of bored in the box and he saw a, a monkey, you know, quite a big one bouncing along the cable trays above sort of all the, the pit box structure. And um, it was only, I think, on Saturday morning when there was actually some video footage of uh, the cheeky little fella. Um, coming out to grab a banana they'd thrown up for him that people actually believed him. And then Sunday morning, I was one of about four or five journalists or photographers in the media center just before everyone arrived and, and said monkey popped out to say hello and was looking at us through the windows of the media center. So uh, it was nice of him to visit. Yeah, well, he's our bunch of animals in the media center. So it's just the reverse of a zoo. Neil, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Well, Steve, my moment of the weekend came on lap 14 
of the MotoGP race on Sunday, Pekka Banyaya had just overtaken Jorge Martin. It looked as though he was edging clear and was going home to a safe second place ahead of his championship adversary for a crucial podium finish. And uh, he binned it at turn five. And um, I think that was uh, not just a big moment this weekend, but potentially a big moment in the championship. Banyaya comes away from India with a 13-point lead. It was 66 uh, less than three rounds ago um, after the sprint in Barcelona. And more than the crash afterwards, he seemed a little bit upset by just how uncompetitive he felt he was, how he felt his normal strong point, which is his ability to break so deep and so late, um, was now basically his weak point. And this was something that had emerged at Mizano. He hadn't taken so much notice of it because obviously he was focused on his injured leg and trying to manage his physical condition that weekend. But India really brought it into into focus and certainly watching from TV, Banyaya was so loose pretty much right the way through the weekend. You could see he was not the kind of smooth wheels in line Pekka Banyaya that we've seen much of last year, much of this year. He was pretty ragged. His rear wheel was sort of moving around a lot. That was costing him time. And he obviously went for the hard front. I think he was the only rider that went for the hard front compound for the race. And yeah, his fourth crash out of a Sunday race of the year. And it's 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 kind of crazy now that, you know, last year wasn't a one-off. This is a, this is kind of a, a thing. This is part of his riding. You have to say, you have to take into account that these mistakes are in his locker. Adam, just because uh, you were in India, you saw Paco walking around the paddock. We saw him with the compression bandage on pretty much the whole weekend. How is he actually physically after the Catalan crash where he was he was ran over? Because obviously he's raced since then, but you know it hasn't been going according to plan. Like Neil said, from that point onwards, he's given up the best part of 50 points to his championship rival. Yeah, another way you could say he's minimizing damage. I think, uh, I mean, from what he was telling us, yeah, he had the bandage on, but he didn't seem to be suffering too badly. Uh, you know, he said the heat as well, which was a big factor in India, was not bothering him that much. And I think, uh, you know, when it when it comes to Peko's situation, it's interesting that we saw him close down a 91-point gap last year to Fabio Quartararo to eventually win the title. And now he's very much the hunted. You know, I think it was well over 60 points he had a margin over people, the rest of the pursuers, I should say, this season. And uh, now that's sort of dwindling. But then also, Steve, um, you know, he very much took this crash on himself. He said it was his mistake, his fault. You know, of course, in, in Catalonia, that the cause of that high side still hasn't really been made clear. Uh, and also Alpine Stars were telling us that, you know, Bagnaya was extremely lucky because there was more G-force on the high side for Alex Marquez in India that ended up with two broken ribs and has ruled him out of the Grand Prix in Japan as well. Uh, compared to what Bagnaya suffered in, in Spain. Uh, he, he did get lucky. It was a, still a violent crash, but he's in this thing. I mean, don't make no mistake. The bigger worry for uh, for, for Pecco is the fact that, uh, you know, he had this braking problem in Mizano. He had it in India. We're going to Mategi, which is, again, a, a, a place with a lot of hard braking. Uh, the, the problem is like rear chatter. Basically, the, the, the rear is bouncing around, and that's pushing the front um he went with a with the hard front in the hope of being able to you know at least sort of like withstand some of that load but they really need to fix this problem in uh, Mategi it's I don't think it's as easy as that after the race Daniel was saying look I trust my uh, team 100% I'm sure they'll fix it um uh like he has a fantastic team around him but uh you know it is a I think it's a fairly complex issue so let's wait and see um it, it could be have a much bigger uh, impact on the championship if it carries on Dave, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Um, my moment of the weekend was Joe Roberts up the inside of turn eight um, on Sergio Garcia uh, to take the podium. It was fantastic, absolutely fantastic um, uh, pass. Very brave, very... Um, and it's a difficult place to pass. And I think it sort of like showed off quite how good that that corner is because it's it's a long banked corner between turns eight and turn nine and it allows you different lines through there um and i sort of wondered if joe roberts uh, experience around daytona made a a, made a difference there but it was just it was just an absolute joy to watch it was a really really good scrap for uh, uh for the podium Let's uh, move it on to our big talking points from the weekend then as well. Adam, we'll come back to you. Obviously, you were in India, so it's always good to get the insight from on the ground. But what was the feeling really for you in terms of the the general nature of the Grand Prix weekend? The crowd was obviously bigger on the Sunday. Yeah, I think the figure was just under 60,000. 
the, the main straight itself, the track is kind of similar in feeling and layout, of course, to the Sepang International Circuit in Malaysia. And the grandstand that runs from the entry of the final corner all the way to sort of the apex of Turn 1, I think that holds something like just under 30,000 fans. I mean, that was pretty busy. So that's, that was the chunk of your audience. I was speaking to somebody um, from Fair Street, which is the group, the organizing or the promoting group in India. And they said that, you know, the, the 100% priority for this year was on making the event operational, basically making it happen. You know, they had a, numerous obstacles to make MotoGP occur in this particular venue and in this country for the first time. So, you know, pr- all out promotion and getting people through the gate wasn't, of course, was a priority, but it wasn't the number one. So I think, you know, they ticked their box there. Um, you know, they had uh, significant government figures in attendance. Um, there were a lot of kind of VIPs. I mean, cricket is everywhere in India. I uh, drove by each day a huge kind of water park and um, we were sort of, it was before opening, it was quite early. And inside the car park of the water park, there was like a cricket match going on every single morning, just like a big group of people like doing an impromptu sort of game. Uh, there's real sort of passion for that sport there. And there were cricketers wandering around the paddock. You know, people were huge Instagram following. So it was, uh, people were really seizing MotoGP. They wanted to sort of spread the word. So I think, you know, if we, I could talk for days about this, but I think the m- most important thing is that India has important government support basically which is what formula one lacked when they raced from 2011 which is when the track opened to 2013 and that of course not only helps financially but brings down um, bureaucratic barriers and uh, that's sort of you know when it came to the visas which was very messy as we know there was something that was still in place right until the last few hours but everything else seemed to go very smoothly Uh, you know the freight everything arrived from Mizano on time things were set up easily the way that the, the grand prix ran apart from some issues with the marshals um, and cleaning the track was was pretty much spot on, just like a European Grand Prix. So, um, yeah, I think uh, we always say that motorcycle racing is not a mainstream sport because the general public don't really understand what it's like to ride a motorcycle. They don't understand what it's like to ride a sports bike and how people like Marquez, Marquez do what they do. Whereas in India, you have, or in Delhi at least, you have a huge, I mean, riding a motorcycle is the main, one of the main forms of transportation. So that barrier, again, is broken. People know what it's like to ride a bike. So I think, you know, there's a smaller transition to getting people engaged into, into MotoGP. Somebody else was telling me as well that MotoGP is kind of perceived as like an entertainment, as a spectacle rather than a sport itself. And that's also something that, you know, Dorna and Fair Street have to work on. And I think you'll see the Indian Grand Prix growing from here. Adam, obviously you mentioned there about Indians in, in Delhi. They have to understand what it's like to ride a bike around Delhi. That also means they understand exactly what it's like to get into a Moto3 qualifying session, constantly <laughs> looking over your shoulder at traffic coming from every which direction. So they've immediately got that as an advantage. It's uh, it's insane, really, trying to describe this to a Western audience. The, the, there are no rules on the road. There are no markings, traffic lights. There is be... only one rule on the road in India. The might is right. That's what I found every time I went there. Okay. Well, I mean, you have it's, the roads almost like an interactive place. I mean, you have bicycles, animals, uh, motorcycles of all t- types. Um, I mean, I didn't really see any bikes over sort of five, six hundred cc, to be honest. It's all small stuff. Um, you know, there's people buying, selling, walking, talking, sleeping, uh, you know, stopping and jumping out and jumping on. Buses are packed. The most people I saw on one motorcycle was four. Uh, I saw a family with a little baby uh, wedged between the mum and dad, all three of them without helmets, still drinking a bottle of milk uh, while we were on the way to the track. Um, There was something every single day that kind of left me open mouthed. Um, But yeah, being mobile and being on two wheels, it's just like a force of nature in India. And I hope it kind of rubs off really on, on MotoGP. Yeah, I think it's always positive when we go to new places like this. And Dave, obviously, one of the things about going to a new circuit is always the interest level that you get from the locals. And what we saw from Europe, looking at all the news that was coming out from India, was that there was a lot of Indian journalists at the race, and they all seemed to really know what they were talking about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it does. It does show because it, I mean, I have a surprisingly large number of uh, followers from India. So it's, it's, it's clear that they love the sport and are interested in the sport. And uh, yeah, the g- questions were, 
generally, uh, you know, pretty knowledgeable. They knew what they were talking about. Um, but yeah, and and to I think it was fifty eight thousand something like that, fifty something thousand on uh, uh, on the, on the Sunday, which is a, a decent crowd. And as Adam said, the most important thing is like make sure it happens, show that it can happen, uh, and then next year you go and promote it. Yeah, the, the the attendance from sort of the Indian media, both specialists and, and non-specialists, was really big and very impressive. And they really seemed to embrace Mark Marquez. I mean, Mark was doing his debriefs later and later. I think one day he was talking at 7.30 in the evening. And when he arrived, you know, there was still a lot of journalists who wanted to know what Mark had to say. And they were seizing the opportunity to ask him stuff and that's fantastic to see because you go to some countries and it's just the usual kind of media core asking the questions uh there were maybe three or four five of the most europeans in the media debriefs but um for mark's debrief i'd say you had up to 20 25 other sort of you know local media there and that's really cool you hope it doesn't sort of tail off yeah i think it's one of those situations Ad, that when we've gone to different places there has been a big local interest whether it's indonesia or thailand and and different places especially in southeast asia and as long as the next few years we're able to maintain that that's where it really is the challenge and that's where like what david said about next year you then promote the event a lot heavier because for most times whenever you go to a, a first race anywhere the big challenge is just to get the race to go ahead and then after that you start to build on it but uh, let's uh, move on to our on-track topics of the weekend. And Adam, what about you? When you look at this weekend, what's the big standout, the big standout talking point? I think we have to... I think it's the developing maturity of Marco Bezzecchi. You know, this was a dominant performance. I actually interviewed him on Thursday uh, when I got to the track, and it was more about how his life is changing as he's becoming more and more prominent, not just inside the VR46 Academy, but, you know, what he's doing inside MotoGP. And um, Marco's a very unassuming guy. He's got a bit of a cheeky sense of humor. But then you know, I think in most media debuts this year, he's cut a little bit of a serious and disengaged figure. I mean, I saw a change in that on Friday when he could see that he was clearly competitive and he was enjoying India. I mean, he was, was laughing and choking and was much more sort of disarming. But, uh, you know, I was asking him in this interview I was doing with him on a one-to-one, you know, how he regards his his public persona and what he wants to do with social media and stuff like that and you know i doubt whether he's going to be a huge mega star for MotoGP if he becomes world champion um i just don't see him really pushing that kind of area of his career at the moment but um in terms of ability i mean wow you can understand why he didn't want to change a single thing in his career setup and the environment he has around him for 2024 because uh yeah, this was powerful stuff, I think, in India. You know, a track where nobody else had been to, he uh, he really made the grade. I just wonder how he would be as a MotoGP world champion. I think, you know, you go to a new track, no one has any experience of it. You get to see really, like, just who the most talented guys on the grid are. Um, obviously, we mentioned that the three Ducati guys were the quickest of the weekend, and that was in no part due to the, the, the superiority of the Ducati this year. But the fact that Bezeki was so much faster than, than anyone really indicates just that what a kind of raw uh, talent that he has. Um, you look at his previous victories this year. Argentina was fantastic, but it was in the rain. Then in Le Mans, he had a, a, a great ride there, but... Banyaya and Finales were both taken out and both maybe had the potential to go with him in that race. It was a bit of chaos which kind of surrounded him getting towards the front. But I feel that this was the first kind of time in the dry that you saw Bezeki do, you know, what what he really can. And it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing to watch. Like no one had any answer for him. We thought that Martin might be able to go with him. Martin, I think, obviously hamstrung himself by making the, ro- the, the wrong rear tire choice for Sunday. But um, you have to say Bezeki even without that, would have probably been very, very tough to beat. I mean, I think he was three seconds faster than Martin uh, in the sprint if you took away the first lap of that race. He was three seconds faster than the victor, and that was when he was overtaking 10 different riders. Um, so, you know, he was just pretty much from Saturday, head and shoulders above the rest. And, uh, you know, as Adam was saying, like, we have to start taking him seriously now in the championship because there have been a few little hiccups along the way this year where he's maybe come to a weekend and not been so competitive, but when... When he's on it, he shows that he can be the fastest rider in the world. Yeah, I was looking at his sector times and um, he was making it all up in sector two, which is basically 
braking for turn four and then the entrance of first sort of turn uh, turn eight. Um, and it, like he said, like he felt really, really strong in braking uh, and, and he liked the corner speed. He was, he was a bit faster than most other riders through turn uh, through sector three as well. And like that part of the track, he was just killing people. But just the, the amount that he was making up on braking in, in, in sector two uh, at the end of turn four is just amazing. Adam, just when you mentioned about the championship as well, obviously we've got two independent riders, two satellite riders in Bezeki and Martin, very much in championship contention now, Martin especially. But do you think it's time for everyone to retire the notion that you need to be on a factory bike to be able to win the world championship this year? Really does look like it could be either way. You need to be on a Ducati to win the world championship. And not according to Jorge Martin, you do you need to be a factory rider to be world champion. But how, how much of that is Martin just... Uh, putting the pressure on Peko though like that has to be part of that as well uh, it, all of it I mean it's all just uh, Martin uh, trying to bottle out really you know it's, it's, it's just it's just Martin saying oh no 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 it's uh, uh, Peko has to win this and if he doesn't win this then, then then it's all his fault so he's just trying to put pressure on him it's not something to be taken particularly seriously yeah just a thing about Bezeki that winning margin of his 8.5 seconds I think it was at the checkered flag that's the biggest in dry conditions in MotoGP since uh, Phillip Island 2019 and even that race in 19 that was kind of down to Vinales crashing out in the final lap when he was fighting with Mark. So, you know, we're not really accustomed to seeing domination on this kind of scale. Um, and, you know, shows just what uh, what phenomenal job uh, Bezeki did and what a phenomenal talent he is. Yeah, and it is one of those situations, as you mentioned as well, Neil, that if it wasn't for the crash in the sprint race, we would have seen that as well on Saturday. Like, he really just had that pace all the way through the weekend. The forms of Bezeki and Martin are obviously very much linked to one another. But Neil, when you look at Martin's weekend, what's the the big standouts for you? Well, where do we start, Steve? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, managing to to hack away further ground at uh, at Benyaya's advantage in the championship now, just thirteen points behind. You could have the fact that um, I think he passed out in the uh, Park Fermi after Sunday's race. Um, I was speaking to someone who was there at Park Fermi, and they were saying that um, he was completely out, and when he came to, he started. Uh, vomiting pretty wildly just down to being completely dehydrated I think he said with about eight laps to go he started feeling the effects of that um, and then we of course we had a, a, a very strange situation where we saw his leathers were, were were kind of undone during the race and he had to slow down um, toward the end and um, and, and re-zip them up so it was uh, it was an absolutely kind of wild weekend on top of that he won the, the sprint um, so yeah, it was uh, it was an action packed weekend, a bit like Austria, where it seemed everything that he did there was a big talking point surrounding it. So, I mean, yeah, where, where do we start with that? Well, I have to say that zipping himself up as he was on the bike was one of the most impressive things I've seen. But Adam, you would have had the chance to find out exactly what the story was for that for Martin. Yes and no, Steve. I still think there's a degree of mystery over it. I mean, what happened to the chest protector? Um, and also, Dave, you looked in the rule book straight away, and there's the I think the wording of the rule book says that riders need to be fully prepped with their riding gear whenever on track, which means a warm up lap, which also could mean um, you know the cool down lap. You know, I think uh, who was it? Was it Joan Zarco? Somebody took their gloves off as well on the slowdown lap. Yeah. So I mean, there's you have to feel some sympathy for the riders because yes, they do race in Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia where you have similar you know circumstances and climate. But India was um, it was kind of humid and you know it was cooler on Saturday because of the rain that came in and swiftly disappeared. But Sunday was a, was it was a furnace out there. I mean, it was um, also like a technically demanding track. It was interesting actually to hear Alex Marquez talk before he crashed and departed for the weekend because he was saying that the there was not a great deal of mystery about Bud. You know, once you got the hang of the corners, then there was no kind of secrets to unlock. And that was a, a strange perspective. We, you know, everyone else had been raving about it really. And they've been able to attack the track in sort of force from the first sessions. I mean, you can see the way the riders were going into turn one. It looked kind of amateur really through FP1. Uh, it seemed, I think Joanne Mir said that from every five attempts, he got like two of them right. So getting consistency through that corner was something they were striving through all through the weekend. But the point being that it was technical, it was physical. And, you know, there were questions over Martin. I mean, is he fit enough? I mean, if you look at him, he's squat, 
he's small, he's, he's, he's ripped. I mean, he's definitely not unfit. But when you see Bagnaya and Bezeki and Marquez, I mean, these guys look like they can do another 21 laps straight away. Jack Miller was asked, you know, did the race need to be reduced from 24 laps to 21? And he said, no, you know, we could have done another three laps. Of course, everyone was struggling with tire wear by the end. But, you know, the, that fitness thing, what happened to Martin when he came into the pit lane and immediately needed water from from his team before going to part Ferme. Uh, it was all like Neil says, very kind of odd and unusual. And, um, I, is it more inconsistency from the stewards that he wasn't fine or there was not, um, an investigation into what was going on with his safety gear because we know Fabio Quattararo was penalized. But I think the fact that Martin actually managed to do up his leathers, which he had not fastened correctly from the warm up lap, then that kind of, you know, raised a lot of the concern. Yeah, I know what you were, you were saying, Ed, and in the rules, it obviously does say that the, the equipment, the rider's safety equipment must be worn correctly fastened at all times during on-track activity. Um, but going back to what happened to Barcelona in 2021, um, I noticed that there was a small tweak to, to some of the rules after that. Mike Webb came out, the race director came out and said that basically um, if there's a, an issue which is not an immediately a problem but needs to be fixed then it's a slightly different situation to the rules in the rule book so if the the leathers are slightly undone then um they basically started a new uh, dashboard message which i think says equipment they would send that out to the riders and then the rider would have to respond to that dashboard message uh, within a handful of laps so from what i gathered speaking to one or two people at the track martin received that on his dashboard saying equipment and then made the, the necessary adjustments afterwards. So I think that was why he avoided the penalty. Yeah, I mean, to me, the bigger mystery is what happened to his chest protector because it didn't look like he had a, prote- a chest protector in. Um, but then again, if he hadn't have had a pro- chest protector in, you would have expected that both Yamaha and KTM to protest uh, because, you know, they would have moved up a, a, a couple of points, especially KTM. You know, KTM would have stood, stand, stood a chance of getting a podium if there'd been uh, some kind of a, uh, a, a penalty applied. And about, like, Martin's fitness, he is, I mean, you know, yes, he looks ripped. But you need an exceptional kind of fitness. That's, you, I mean, like, you know, Marco Bezecchi was climbing up, up and down uh, scaffolding and all sorts of things and uh, uh, running around. And it's not just about fitness. It's also about preparation. You need to be hydrated. John Sarka was saying, like, he was drinking carefully throughout. At uh, some point, he got past Franco Morbidelli, and then he made sure to take, uh, to, to, to take a drink from, his, uh, from, his, um, from the camelback in his, in his hump. Um, just to make sure that he got some some water on board, so it didn't look like uh, Jorge Martin actually took care of himself, which is uh, a, a bit of a worry. Uh, and with Indonesia and Thailand coming up, that's going to be a, like a major concern. He's going to have to prepare much better. Yeah, this is one of those things, Dave. For a lot of riders, it's about trying to find that balance, and that's why you know Carlos Chaki used to do a lot of rock climbing. Aleish obviously does a lot of cycling. Some guys do running. Most of them have to try and balance things out and it's not always just about physically how you look it's about what you're able to do through it i thought it was a bit um obviously we mentioned there about the shortened race distances and i thought it was a bit of a surprise to see that the sprint was shortened because you know fair enough you want to take off the feature length race i I couldn't really understand why the shorter race was shortened i may have also had something to do with the light because it was getting pretty late at that stage and you know it was getting dark I, i was taking some pictures like i said in sort of one of my moments of the weekend down at turn one and the sun was dipping behind the grandstand um of course you know the riders wouldn't have been racing in the dark but i think the cumulative effect of the all the delays steve had a bearing on that also and uh, just about Martin's performance, just before we take the ad break, Neil, you mentioned about what we were able to see from him on track as well. He's now got that points deficit down to 13 points. He's going to go to Motegi and put Pe- put Peko under pressure for that as well. Martin had a podium there last year. Peko obviously crashed out of Motegi last year. Exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, you could say that Martin sort of made a, a big mistake before the race, choosing the uh, the medium rear tyre. Everyone else was on the soft. I think he said immediately from the, uh, the warm-up lap, he realised that it was a wrong decision because the medium was sliding around quite a bit. Um, and that really seemed to hamstring his performance. Maybe that had something to do with him being exhausted because the bike was more of a handful in those kind of hot conditions, uh, sliding around a bit more than, than he was expecting. I don't know, that's just pure... Uh, conjecture on my part um but then you have to also admire how he did you know yes he made the mistake down into turn four um but then for him to kind of recover his his mind and and basically uh 
fight back on Quattro coming out of turn five. I mean, that was a really aggressive, impressive um, overtake. Um, and when you saw just how destroyed he was afterwards, I mean, like blacking out, vomiting, um, the fact that he was able to recover from that mistake at turn four in the final lap and then retake Quattro, I thought was was pretty impressive work. But yeah, his tail is, is most certainly up. And, uh, you know, just listening to, he didn't do any um, media debrief after the race on Sunday. Um, you know, Pramac being Pramac, we got, I think, a 40 second voice note through, which uh, really didn't cover even a fraction of what happened uh, to him on Sunday. Yeah. Um, but he did, he did speak to, I think, the zone, the Spanish broadcaster for a couple of minutes. And, um, you know, from that, you could definitely see that he's got his tail up. He, he's really, really believes that this is this is a possibility now before it was like well you know i'm there but now it's like hey we, we can win this so um yeah i think this weekend in Bottega is going to be fascinating just a quick note as well about the post-race stuff i think that was the shortest official press conference i've ever seen in MotoGP. i mean it was literally a handful of questions uh you know dorna were well aware that both Bezeki and quattararo you know had been hanging around in leathers doing tv interviews straight after the podium for a while martin of course wasn't even there so uh yeah wisely they decided to sort of cut things short and let the riders get some sort of refluids in them and recover so uh yeah, it was was a demanding, demanding day for those guys. We're going to take an ad break now. And uh, when we come back, we're going to hear about one of our last topics of the weekend and a very special interview as well. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. David, let's come to you for our last big talking point at the Indian Grand Prix. Uh, well, uh, the, the big talking point is how well, especially the Hondas, seem to do around the Bud International Circuit. We saw uh, Mark on the podium in the sprint race. Is it still a podium? I don't know. Well, he got a bronze medal anyway. Um, uh, we also saw uh, Juan Mir really made a massive step uh, uh, forward. He was, you know, pretty competitive. They were, I think, fifth and sixth on the grid. Um, and it, the bike just seemed to really work well. Now, I think that is a bit deceptive, and certainly that's what um, Mark Marcus was saying. At, at the start, Mark was saying... Uh, on the Friday, he was look, saying, uh, look, we're both quick because we're both very good riders. And you saw it with Fabio Quattararo as well. Um, uh, Mark was saying, you yeah, know, look at Fabio. They're good riders. They learn quickly. And it's it's less about the bike. It's much more about the rider in those initial sessions. Um, then once we got to sort of Saturday and uh, Mark, uh, Mark on the podium and, you know, Joan Mir was running well until he crashed out. Um, and he wasn't even really all that upset about, about crashing out. Uh, during the sprint race um in the main hand on the exhaust pipe dave oh yeah exactly <laughs> I, I i did actually wonder whether he picked up a um uh, picked up an injury because i've done that and uh i can uh, assure you it is uh, not at all pleasant uh not 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 ideal there are better things to hold grab hold of to pick your bike up um uh, but yeah, I mean, like the, the the same with Mark in the in the main race. He you know he, he crashed out early, uh, got back on, and really fought his way back through to I think ninth in the end. Um, it, it just like the bike seemed to be working well. And is this a revival? Have have Honda found something? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's better. Honda still have their main problem. Basically, what Mark Marcus was saying after the race was, look, this is just. Uh, this circuit, like Austin, for example, uh, really minimizes the, 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 the weak point of the bike, which is uh, acceleration on the edge. You don't accelerate on the edge of the tire very much here. There was a lot of braking in a straight line. There was a lot of accelerating in a straight line where you pick the bike up really early and get onto the tire and then can uh, start to accelerate. Um, you could actually see the, the Hondas. I mean, they weren't making up ground like they used to. Uh, but at least they could stick with uh, some of the other bikes uh, off the corner. But where they really lose that is the long corners, places like Barcelona, where you get on the edge of the tyre and you're trying to apply throttle uh, and the rear just starts spinning and spinning and spinning. Now, for Mo Juan Mir, I think there is a much... Uh, I think it's much more positive for, for, for Mir because he came away from the Misano test having been able to like just run through a whole bunch of things and get his head around the way that he needed to ride uh, the, the Honda. Um, he brought that to India and really made a bit of a step. And I, I would 
expect him to be a little bit more competitive, or even though the, the bike itself didn't make a step. But I think I think Mir made a step this weekend. Neil, just with what David's talking about there, do you think will some of that be able to be transferred to Motegi? Obviously, you're not really having to use the edge of the tyre as much in Motegi as some other tracks. There's a lot of heavy braking zones. So can Honda carry that forward to next weekend? Yeah, it's interesting, Steve, isn't it? Because Mark was on pole at Motegi last year, albeit, I think, in the wet conditions, uh, but had a good ride in the race. That was his first... Well, it wasn't his first race. It was his first finish since uh, coming back from... uh, from injury and surgery um, and he finished fourth I think if I'm not mistaken just off the podium so he, he, he was competitive last year um, and it is interesting because we had a, a stiffer construction uh, rear tyre in India which I think we also had in Austria um, Thailand and Indonesia I think are the other tracks where we'll have that uh, that stiffer carcass and Mark was saying all weekend that normally our bike is is worse when we have this carcass so it was uh, it was quite perplexing for him to to be more competitive but yeah it's it will be interesting Steve Mategi um you know as you were saying um does have those many heavy braking uh, zones where you kind of just like square it off and squirt it out um you know I think there's like at least four points on the track which are like that so in theory it should be decent again for Honda I mean I think we're already seeing signs of a, a kind of recovery from Mark at Mizano, where he finished seventh, which was a, a tremendous ride considering where he had been in the previous couple of weekends. Um, and it just seems that now they've got a little bit of wind in their sails, recovering ever so slightly. The bike isn't that much better, but you just feel that the guys are a bit more aware of where the limits are and what their expect, what a realistic expectation is of a weekend. And I know Mark crashed out of a podium or a potential podium position when he was fighting. He was trying to hang on to Peko in fourth when he fell down. But um, yeah, you just feel that they've kind of aligned their expectations and uh, and are a bit more realistic now of, of what they're capable of doing. It's um, I think it's a great narrative, you know, because Honda have suffered pretty much all season and now they're coming up to sort of their home Grand Prix and there's extra questions about what Mark Marquez is actually going to do you know after stringing along sort of the sport the fans and the media for the better part of two months I think we're actually going to see some sort of development quickly but Dave I thought your point um, or you know your discussion about Juan Mir is particularly valid because this was like a big breath of fresh air for Juan I mean he's been asked whether he'll retire I mean he's been coming to media debriefs extremely angry um, you know and this was you know return to sort of the rider that we've you know come to sort of know over the last few years in MotoGP um, smiles uh, very sort of candid you know kind of you know, sense of humor back again. And, you know, whatever happens with Mark, I think Joanne could actually end up leading this project. You know, if Marquez does defect to Grassini, to Honda, to wherever, then Mir is very much going to be the point man on, on the development direction for the RCV. So I think this was particularly encouraging for the whole you know, race team and division that, you know, he was able to sort of show some of his talent. He wasn't sort of handcuffed like he has been for most of the year. Um, there were comments, of course, from Ducati management about Mark Marquez in India. Uh, I asked him about it on Saturday. Again, he repeated his line about only he and one or two people in his closest um, entourage or his, his group know what's in his mind, what he wants to do. But it's all coming to a head now because you think if he has made up his mind to leave Honda, he's going to be having some key meetings in Japan in Motegi to say, thanks, guys, I'm off. What do we do about the severance package? Uh, if he decides to stay with Honda, then I think, you know, he's also going to be having some important meetings, which he said discussions have been happening since Mugello about what Honda are prepared to do and where the, the, the direction of the project is going to go. So I still think it's 50-50, even though it does seem there was more of a tighter and confirmed connection with Ducati and him in India than we've seen so far in 2023. Yeah, did everyone crap themselves this morning when they saw that they had a Grassini uh, uh, press release and it turned out to be that uh, they'd signed a new, or they'd, they'd re-upped with a sponsor, Gianeschi? Um, I uh, definitely, I mean, like, yeah, my working theory is that um, Mark is going to Honda to talk to HRC bosses to tell them uh, in face-to-face to explain why he's made this decision to, to leave uh, and that he'll be gone and we'll have to wait and see whether it's a one-year deal or a two-year deal, what he does after that. Um, yeah, I, th- that's how I, that's what I think is, is going to happen in Honda. 
It's interesting, over the weekend we saw Sky Italia reporting that they think it's a done deal that Mark is going to Ducati, or Grassini Ducati. Uh, we saw yesterday, Monday, um, Mela Cercoles in Diario As reporting that Mark is definitely going to Grassini Ducati. And interestingly, he would not have to pay a penalty to leave his contract, his Honda contract, a year early. Um, and the sort of the balance of that would be that Honda would then have an option to re-sign him back in 2025 after they've had a year of development to bring their bike up to a competitive level. So, I mean, very interesting to see if that happens. But, you know, it, it, it does seem that more publications are now saying this is this is happening. Yeah, I, I do think about developing the Honda, I do think that the, um, Ad's point about Joan Mir leading this is a really good one. It was something that I was thinking about myself over the weekend, that it gives... Uh, also, Mark leaving Honda is not necessarily a bad thing because it frees them up. It takes away that burden of having the, the, the best rider. It allows them to, you know, like focus on other things, to actually work on the bike without that constant pressure of, look, we need to be winning a championship now. Um, Juan Mir finding some confidence, that has got to help. That's got to help lead the project. And like uh, the, the, I mean, the, there's lots of scenarios being kicked around, but I would expect them to put uh, Joan Zarco in Repsol Honda, um, which I think is some of the rumours which were kicking about the Superbike paddock, Steve. Um, uh because he's just the most experienced rider. And what you want now is experience, knowledge of other bikes to understand how to build a better bike and to, to, to push the, the push the project forward. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm Honda that I'm immediately jumping on the back of Joan Mir, considering that from round one until now, he hadn't had a point score and finish. So it'll be interesting to see what does happen with that. What we heard in the Superbike paddock was, and this was from Ducati people within the, within the paddock, that Mark had signed with Grassini and... Rinaldi was walking around the paddock very relaxed all weekend. He's the rider that we all expect will replace Lekawona on the Honda Superbike. So Rinaldi had he had a lot of lot of talk this weekend about what he was going to do. A lot of talk that was legit that he was going to go to Moto2, but looks like he's relaxed now. He's going to stay in the Superbike paddock. So that would indicate that it is going to be a case of Mark going to Grassini, eager to MotoGP to replace Arco, who moved to, Hon- to the Repsol team. So be interesting to see how it all plays out. Adam, Obviously enough, the weekend finished off on um, a lot of positive notes for Honda. And you finished off your weekend by chatting to Santi Hernandez, crew chief for Mark. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite finishing off the weekend because it was chaotic um, post-race. Just trying to get to rider debriefs. Like like Dave mentioned, people were in a rush to get packed up and get on the way to, to Japan already. And um, yeah, thanks to sort of, you know, our colleague and friend, um, Harry Lloyd at HRC, he managed to sort of get Santi away from the freight boxes because the Honda were really busy um, getting things ready for the next phase of MotoGP. And uh, Santi, well, gave us five minutes just to explain, you know, how things have been for the guys at Honda over the weekend. Well, let's hear from Santi now. And uh, when we come back, we'll do our winners and losers from the Indian Grand Prix. Uh, Santi, first of all, congratulations. Uh, pretty decent weekend, you know, considering the way the season's been going so far. Uh, what's the feeling in the pit box? It feel, does it feel a bit like progress? Well, I mean, uh, we are happy because yesterday he can be in the top three. Uh, today he was able to finish in the podium. I think so. If uh, he didn't crash, the, the rhythm was okay. It was very good. And uh, yeah, we are happy. I mean, but of course, uh, we need to be realistic no this is a new circuit where nobody have any information in the past we know mar in the new circuit he is able to be fast from the beginning like uh, he saw from friday and uh, yeah i mean uh, about the progress uh, we need to to be a little bit uh, calm i mean uh, at the end uh, the result from here it's not to say are good but uh, we need to wait uh, for motegi and for the rest of uh, circuit where Everybody know and everybody have information, everybody have uh, data and then uh, we will see. And then if uh, this is something like uh, we can be there like here, we'll be positive because it looks like uh, we found something. But at the moment, I cannot say uh, the result from here will be the, the, the great. You know? Santi, how can you explain the, the competitiveness this weekend? I mean, you say it's a new track for everybody. I think if Mark was fast on Friday but then not competitive yesterday or today that would be normal but you guys were quite strong all the way through yeah it's like I say I mean uh, normally when uh, you arrive in the new circuit all the bikes it's coming closer because uh, nobody have any information and then everybody start from zero and then when you start from zero 
for me, it's more the different make more different the rider than the bike. And then for me, this is the reason why here the, the rider can be even better than, uh, than the other place. It's not the, the bike, I mean, but uh, honestly speaking, I mean, uh, I, I cannot say uh, after here we found the solution because still the problem are the same and uh, we are starting on the same points, but the difference is a new circuit. And then if like Misano, we are closer, but still our problem was same. The tires and the heat was also a factor, do you think? I mean, here for everybody was a factor from the rear tire because uh, we know the temperature, especially from the center, we get a lot of temperature and uh, this is one of the, the biggest problems, but was for everybody. This is something like not only for us, was for everybody, but of course, uh, if uh, you are struggling more for the spin, when you arrive on the circuit where you have more problems, your problem is coming bigger. No? Mark has been talking this season about changing the working style, um, about not pushing the limits and, and you know, we're seeing a different kind of approach compared to previous seasons. Was today a bit more like normal? Like we've come to see you guys approach Grand Prix weekends in the past? Well, I mean, uh, I understand Mark. Uh, I mean, he's trying uh, every, every race and every exit to try to push the maximum. But uh, when uh, you try to push and you crash and you crash and you crash and you crash, it's normal. He say, okay, I will take care, no? But uh, we can see, uh, as soon as uh, he saw he can be competitive, Mark is come back and he don't care. It's like what happened today, why he cried, because he saw he can be there. He tried to push and uh, he tried to don't lose the front group. And of course, when you are all the time on the limit, can happen that. But uh, for me, it's normal what uh, he say. And, uh, but Mark always is Mark. I mean, uh, we can see when uh, he have some opportunity to be there, he try, he never give up. Santi, can I ask you about the emotion of this season? I know the previous years have been difficult with Mark being injured, working with Stefan, working in a different way. But how has like 2023 felt for you? Has it been a period of discovery or has it been frustrating? What's really been your perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy when, uh, when uh, we, you are on the factory team like uh, Honda what uh, your target is win, not to finish in the top 10 or top 15. But uh, we never give up. I mean, uh, of course, you cannot uh, fight to win every year. But uh, for me, the most important is uh, the job we do, we do it in the box is give us the 100% like the rider. After that, uh, the result can come or not. But uh, also many things not depend only for the group in the circuit. No? It's depending on the, in the other side too. But for me, it's not frustrating because at the end, if you are frustrating, you cannot work and then you give up. And uh, it's opposite, it's motivation not to try to what we have, try the maximum and try to do the, the maximum what uh, we have. Lastly, uh, home GP for Honda next. Um, how's the approach for this race? Considering, you know, some forward progress made this weekend, you must be curious to see how you guys can compare next week. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, of course, it's a home GP. Uh, Honda home and uh, yeah I mean uh, I will arrive like in uh, other GPs we know where we are I mean uh, we have to be realistic we cannot say now we will arrive at home GP and uh, we can win we can be we have to be realistic we have to consider we are struggling and we have to, to do the maximum what we can to try to be as more higher we can, but uh, of course I will do the like uh, in the other GP. I mean, uh, no change for me. Of course, it will be nice to arrive to Honda home to try to, to win, but uh, I will say, we, I hope I make a mistake and uh, we can win, but it uh, will be different. Santi, thanks for your time. Best of luck in Motegi. Thank you very much. Thanks to Santi for joining us on the podcast. Always good to be able to get interviews like that at the end of a weekend. We do offer those on our Paddock Notes show, so check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast where you can become a Paddock Insider and uh, get our Paddock Notes show throughout the course of the weekend. Tom Groom, Matt Flay and Nick Adams, just three of our new patrons for the uh, podcast on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast this week. Adam, we'll come to you first for your winners and losers from the weekend. So who's your big winner from the weekend? Uh, I'm going to say Fabio and Yamaha. Steve, uh, second podium appearance of the season. First one in Austin, both third positions. Uh, you know, he had his best sprint result as well on a Saturday. Um, he's the first Japanese rider in the championship in 11th place. You know, it's still quite some distance off. But, uh, you know, Quattararo looking competitive again. I think that was a positive thing. It was um, encouraging, I thought, also... 
at various points during the season, uh, during the sessions where we had all of the manufacturers in the top positions. I mean, this wasn't like, say, in a prettier whitewash, um, you know, like in Barcelona and also in Silverstone or just like a, a Ducati field day. There were other competitive brands. I think Brad Binder as well got more competitive as he went on through the weekend. And also he's one to watch out for in Motegi next week uh, where he finished runner up last year. But uh, yeah, it was uh, Fabio was not over the moon. Uh, he was not particularly positive on Saturday either. Uh, he said, again, he was riding on the absolute limit. Uh, that was the best they can do. Um, it's almost uh, it's cruel in a way because he had a, a touch of what it felt like to be successful again in MotoGP. But he really, really, really had to work for that. And I think that sort of depressed him more to a degree. But uh, yeah, I'm going to say my winner for, for is the Blue Boys, especially Fabio. It can always be tough when you get a reminder of what it's like to be at the front of the field whenever you've had such a tough year like Fabio. So uh, good call on him as your big winner. David, what about you? Who was your winner? Uh, just to go back to um, uh, Ad's winner about Fabio, uh, also interesting that uh, the two places where the Japanese bikes have done well has been Austin because Austin uh, Fabio was on the podium in Austin and he was on the podium here and it was the Hondas doing well as well. But for me, the winner is uh, the Martinator because he Martinated all over this weekend um, uh, for all of the reasons we've said. You know, he's he's genuinely in with a shot for the championship now. Yeah, thank you very much, Moto, Mat- Moto Managers in Nature. Um, Neil, what about you? Who was your big winner? Well, we've just spoken about him uh, in a decent bit of detail, but Juan Mir, just because um, it was fantastic to see him looking like his old self. Top five finish for him. Um, amazingly, the first time he's been in a MotoGP top five since Barcelona last June. Uh, it's been a, a wretched, wretched run, not just at the end of his tenure at Suzuki, but then obviously pretty much all of this year. Um, and his first points since Portimao, which is also just remarkable. You have to sort of pinch yourself that that is actually what Mir's season has turned out to be like. But um, yeah, great to see him up there. And actually, it was interesting. He wasn't fully delighted with that top five finish. He said, obviously, it was great to be back in the mix, but he felt the podium was kind of there for him. He started having a vibration with his rear tyre in the closing laps and uh, that meant he lost a little bit of ground towards uh, Fabio and then obviously lost fourth to, to Brad Binder later on too so he felt that you know it could have been even better than uh, than, than that fifth place and um, yeah just great to see Mir looking like his old self sounding like his old self and having a smile on his face again because it had been it had been tough to see uh, you know a, an excellent rider a former MotoGP world champion sink to the depths that he had uh, in previous runs. Yeah, I have to say my big winner was you, Neil, because in MotoGP Fantasy on the Paddock Pass Podcast League, you've managed to jump into a big lead over me. So uh, fair play to that. I actually had Mir on my team and it still made no difference whatsoever. But uh, for for you, Neil, who was your big loser of the weekend? Well, I mean, it's not exactly like they had a disaster, um, but I'm going to say KTM just because, yeah, they're sort of they're out of the championship now. You'd have to say Brad Binder is 100 points off Pekka Banya in the title fight. It's the third race weekend in a row where Brad just hasn't quite been at the level of Ducati. You know, he was sort of knocking on the door for a few races there. Um, you know, Silverstone in Austria. Um, but uh, he was fourth and it was a it was a decent ride. He managed to get fourth off Mir towards the end, but it just didn't quite have that... I think he was expecting them to be a lot stronger throughout the weekend. And um, yeah, at no point did you really feel that they were ever going to be in the mix um, for the victory. Um, and uh, yeah, out of the title fight now, you would have to say with what, seven races still to go. So, um, I, you know, I've always been of the opinion that this year was going to be a year too early for Brad to be properly fighting for the championship. But I think this, uh, this just kind of uh, confirmed that, um, yeah, my suspicions were correct. David, obviously, other than MotoGP press officers who all use the same tagline for the entire weekend, who was your big loser <laughs> of the weekend? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, my big loser for the weekend was Jeremy Alcoba because it remains a mystery to me why he actually gets a Moto2 ride because um, <laughs> he seems uh, incapable of riding without um, uh, bumping into someone. Uh, then he gets a, a long lap penalty for aggressive riding, um, manages to miss the deadline for the long lap penalty, get a double long lap penalty and uh, uh, fall off and crash while trying attempting to do the long lap penalty. Is it possible for me to change my moment of the weekend? (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was a beautiful piece of justice seeing him crash on his, um, uh, on uh, trying to do his long lap penalty, just like toppling over and then getting up. (laughs) <laughs> just very quickly as as a small topic as well is it interesting neil obviously you are 
commentating on Moto3 and Moto2. I commentate on Junior GP. So when you look at the riders that come through the ranks, they spend so long on Moto3 bikes that in Junior GP, three or four years, now obviously the 18-year age limit is going to change that as well, where you're going to spend even more time in CEV. And then you move on to the World Championship, you do two or three years on a Moto3 bike. You spend so much of your career on the same type of bike that it's actually very difficult to really assess who's going to adapt well to a Moto2 bike. Uh, it is, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, Alcoba's clearly a talented lad, but um, it's just more about the intelligence, the temperament. And from what I can see, he's lacking in both. Yeah, I would say to your point, Steve, Izan Guevara. I would also say, I mean, look at somebody like Izan Guevara. Um, you know, he, he was winning races almost with one hand in Moto3. And Moto2 has been a whole different prospect altogether. I um, actually did an interview with him uh, in Mizano, uh, which uh, published pretty soon. But um, yeah, it's, you're, you're right, Steve. That transition seems to be easier for some compared to others. I actually think Sergio Garcia has not had a such a bad sort of like, you know, debut season in Moto2. And um, yeah, there are other individuals that are blending slightly easier with that increased technical package. But um, I also think, you know, what was more kind of bizarre? Was it Alcoba dropping the bike through the long lap or Dennis Onchu crashing while going into pit lane? Uh, that was also pretty, you know, uh, not the heights of smart behavior, was it? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I'd, it's also not the not the smartest way to be able to segue into your big loser of the weekend. But we'll move off the, the topic of pit lane fiascos. And uh, who was your big loser of the weekend? Well, actually, mine does involve another pit lane fiasco because, uh, you know, I'm going to say Aprilia and perhaps especially Alesh Espargaro because this was, um, I think, concerning for Aprilia where they can, again, move from extremes to circuits where they dominate and they clearly have the best technical package to others where they struggle and they, they cannot seem to really find a solution. Um, Marit Vignales was telling us on Sunday that he actually experimented with a setup where he was putting a lot more um, balance on the front of the bike for braking um, the rear wheel was in the air and that was where he was able to find more traction once he was actually into the corner than having a more stable rear end and using both aspects of the motorcycle which kind of left us scratching our heads a little bit you know you think if that's sort of your solution to to solving these rear end issues under braking then it's it seems quite extreme but it seemed to work for him and then Alesh of course having that technical problem going back into the garage and having a scream at his his team um we all know that he's fantastically transparent with his emotions and you kind of love him or hate him for that but you know I don't think you could really deride him too much for it I think when he went back into the pit box one of the people he really kind of swore at was uh, race manager Paolo Bonora um, so I wasn't surprised at all when Alesh came into the, the media debrief later on in the day and seemed very, very humbled. Uh, he was quite contrite. Uh, he didn't really want to talk too much about the sessions in which he was struggling, but more about uh, wanting to apologize to the team and to Aprilia for his behavior. And I wouldn't have been surprised, actually, if someone had gone up to him and saying, if you ever speak like that to me again, I'm going to knock your teeth out because it was a step too far, I think. And, um, you know, he recognized that. I mean, the mature guy, experienced guy. So, uh, yeah, it was, wasn't the best weekend for those boys. Yeah, I think it's also a lot easier to think Aprilia would have a reaction like that whenever this season Maverick is so much closer to Alesh as well. There's only, what, 20 points between them in the championship. Mavericks turned themselves into a regular top seven, top eight runner, a few good weekends as well. So it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back this weekend at Motegi because, Neil, we're going to have just a quick look forward to this weekend's Japanese Grand Prix. What's the big thing you're looking out for this weekend? Um, I guess it's really to see Peko's reaction, um, how he responds to this kind of slick, uh, you know, this kind of tricky situation that he finds himself in. Um, Mategi hasn't been great for him in the past. I think he's had, what, just one year, or, sorry, two years of, of riding a MotoGP machine there, 2019. And then last year, obviously, when we went back after the, the, the kind of the, the COVID absence. Um, so, and yeah. He I, I, and he crashed. He had, a, he had a horrible weekend. He crashed out of, what, ninth or tenth as well. It wasn't like he crashed out of the lead or crashed out of second. It was a, it was going to be a bad race before he fell. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's pressure's on and it's going to be really interesting to see how the world champion reacts. David, what about you? What are you looking forward to? Uh, yeah, as uh, Neil says, first of all, can Ducati fix uh, Paco's problems? Can they fix his issue with uh, with braking? Um, what certainly what uh, Bezeki and what um, uh, uh, Martin do. Also, uh, I'm very interested to see what 
um, uh, Joan Mayer can do around uh, around Mategi because I think if he can continue that progress that he showed uh, at the last race and at the test, I, I think that is going to be quite important. Adam, obviously you're in Barcelona for this weekend's race, but what are you looking forward to watching? Steve, I think uh, we have to see what Jorge Martin can do. Uh, he was on the podium in Motegi last year. Uh, and, you know, I think there's another chance for him to possibly get some points back on Bagnaya for reasons that Neil, Neil pointed out. Uh, I, mean, I haven't checked since, but the last I heard from somebody inside the paddock in India that the forecast for Japan is for more hot weather. Um, which is good because sometimes it can be quite miserable in Motegi, as we know. So let's see how that, that develops. Um, let's not forget that behind the Mark Marquez story, which is probably reaching a bit of a crescendo now, is also this five riders into four places at KTM or Pira Mobility Group. I think that's something we're also going to see developments in. Um, I don't think India was a fantastic weekend for Paul Espargaro. Uh, it wasn't too bad for Augusto Fernandez, who continued his his kind of routine of improving as the weekend goes on. Um, it wasn't fantastic for Jack Miller either, who was the winner from Motegi last year. And uh, how the Pira Mobility Group organised those riders around those four places, it's, I think it's going to come to a peak soon, and we'll probably hear something. I'd say quickly, um, quite after. Well, quite soon after the the Marquez decision. Yeah, and uh, the Marquez decision could come as early as Thursday. That's obviously, for me and World Superbikes, the one that I'm most interested in, just to see how that's going to mean that we're going to shake things up over the course of our grid. Obviously, this weekend, throughout the weekend, we'll have our Paddock Notes show on Patreon. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. You can sign up for a free trial on that. Check out what we produce over the weekend. And then if you like that, become a Paddock Insider for the rest of the season we also will offer the paddock notes show on thursday on our normal podcast platforms keep an eye out for that it's around about a 20 minute review of what we hear inside the paddock on the thursday so all the rider debriefs any rumors that we're hearing around the paddock and then just our insight for the weekend ahead so check out our paddock notes show on thursday We'll also have a World Superbike review show from Aragon. Myself and Gordo will record that later in the week and uh, we'll be able to get everyone up to speed on what we saw at the Aragon round of World SPK. So for myself, Steve English, Neil Morrison, David Emmett and Adam Wheeler, big thank you to Renthal Street for supporting the podcast and for everyone to listen. episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler music is provided by the libertine all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com